York. This is Democracy Now! Earlier this afternoon, Donald Trump was arraigned on a New York Supreme Court indictment returned by a Manhattan grand jury on 34 felony counts of falsifying business records in the first degree. 34 felonies. That's what Donald Trump is facing after being arraigned in a New York courtroom, becoming the first U.S. president ever to be criminally charged. We'll speak to a longtime criminal defense attorney as well as former presidential candidate Ralph Nader. Then we look at two major victories for progressives Tuesday. Brandon Johnson has won the Chicago mayoral race, and a Democratic-backed judge has won a highly contested race for a seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, giving progressives control of the court for the first time in 15 years. Wisconsin voters have made their voices heard. They've chosen to reject partisan extremism in this state. And we go to Tennessee, where Republicans are trying to expel three Democratic lawmakers for supporting student-led gun control protests at the state capitol after last week's mass school shooting in Nashville. Three of us lawmakers who stood with our constituents demanding that they take action and hear that thousands of people gathered on Thursday talking about the crisis of mass shootings. Um, we're, are, we've been kicked off our committees as, as representatives elected by our constituents. Each of us represents 78,000 people, and our people are being silenced. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Former President Donald Trump pleaded not guilty to 34 felony counts of falsifying business records to cover up hush money payments made to adult film star Stormy Daniels, Playboy model Karen McDougal, and a former Trump Tower doorman during his 2016 presidential campaign. Trump's the first U.S. president to be criminally charged, also the first president to be impeached twice. Trump was fingerprinted after his arrest Tuesday, but did not have his mugshot taken and was not handcuffed. After his arraignment in New York, Trump flew back to his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida, where he railed against his prosecution to his supporters and the media. Our elections were like those of a third-world country. And now this massive election interference at a scale never seen before in our country, beginning with the radical left, George Soros-backed prosecutor Alvin Bragg of New York, who campaigned on the fact that he would get President Trump. I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. This is a guy campaigning. Trump also attacked the judge, Judge Juan Mershon. Mershon's wife and his daughter. In Chicago, Brandon Johnson was elected mayor in a major victory for progressives. Johnson, a black teachers' union organizer, defeated conservative Democrat Paul Vallis, a champion of charter schools who ran on a law and order platform, despite massive amounts of money being poured into the Vallis campaign. Johnson spoke last night after his victory was announced, calling Chicago a union town and vowing to support working people. The truth is, the people have always worked for Chicago. Whether you wake up early to open the doors of your businesses, or teach middle school, or wear a badge to protect our streets, or nurse patients in need, or provide child care services, you have always worked for this city. 
And now Chicago will begin to work for its people, all the people. In another election in Wisconsin, progressive judge Janet Prasewitz won the special election for the state Supreme Court, flipping Wisconsin's highest court after 15 years of a conservative majority. Prasewitz's victory gives the court the votes it needs to restore abortion rights, which were taken away after Roe v. Wade was overturned last summer challenge the state's highly gerrymandered legislative maps and prevent potential anti-democratic maneuvers in 2024 in the crucial swing state. Protasewicz addressed her supporters last night after her win was called. Our state is taking a step forward to a better and brighter future where our rights and freedoms will be protected. And while there is still work to be done, tonight we celebrate this historic victory that has obviously reignited hope in so many of us. In international news, Israeli police raided the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in occupied East Jerusalem late Tuesday, attacking Palestinian worshippers during Ramadan. The Israeli police attacked us inside there. All of the young people inside are suffering, and no one is helping them. What are you waiting for? They attacked everyone inside. The windows of the mosque are all broken. Witnesses say police used stun grenades and tear gas and beat worshippers with batons and rifles. At least a dozen people were injured. 400 Palestinians were arrested. Al-Aqsa's medical clinic was destroyed. Meanwhile, on Monday, Israeli forces killed two more Palestinians in a military raid in the city of Nablus in the occupied West Bank, bringing the total number of Palestinians killed by Israel this year to at least 94. Over 400 human rights defenders from across the globe were killed last year, with Colombia accounting for nearly half the cases, making it the deadliest country for rights activists in the world. That's according to a new report by the international group Frontline Defenders, which said the killings of human rights activists skyrocketed in 2022. Ukraine also topped the list, followed by Mexico, Brazil and Honduras. In Bangladesh, around 3,000 shops at a popular clothing market in the capital, Dhaka, were destroyed Tuesday during a massive fire that took over six hours to contain. Hundreds of firefighters and soldiers were deployed to battle the blaze as a tour through stores, turning them into piles of ashes. Shopkeepers say they may not be able to recover from the financial loss. In Pakistan, at least 13 women and children were crushed to death Friday outside a factory in Karachi that was distributing food donations and cash for the month of Ramadan. Victims were stampeded as hundreds of people rushed the collection site. Eight people, including the factory manager, have been arrested, accused of failing to put safety protocols in place. The tragedy comes as Pakistan is facing a worsening economic crisis, skyrocketing inflation, with many families unable to afford enough food. This is a grieving father who Seven-year-old child was killed in the crush. There were no rules or regulations as my son got trampled there. I am totally devastated. There are other people like me whose children were killed, martyred. The women who had nothing to eat went there. Can't the government see that people are dying of hunger? 
The International Court of Justice ruled the U.S. illegally froze the assets of Iranian companies and ordered the U.S. to pay compensation. But the ICJ also said it did not have jurisdiction over the $1.75 billion from Iran's central bank that's being held at Citibank in New York. Both Tehran and Washington claim victory in the rulings from the International Court of Justice, also known as the World Court. The U.S. froze the assets to serve as compensation for victims of a 1983 bombing in Lebanon and other attacks it says were linked to Iran. Though ICJ rulings are binding, there's no mechanism for enforcing them. A judge in Alaska dealt a blow to environmental indigenous activists, ruling ConocoPhillips can move ahead with construction on the $8 billion Willow drilling project, which the Biden administration approved last month. The groups that sought to halt the construction vowed to continue their legal fight. A Johnson & Johnson subsidiary has filed for bankruptcy a second time and upped their settlement offer from $2 billion to $8.9 billion in response to tens of thousands of lawsuits by customers who say its talc products cause their cancer. This comes after an appeals court in January rejected an earlier attempt by Johnson & Johnson to offload its lawsuits onto a spinoff company and file that entity for bankruptcy. J&J heavily marketed its baby powder to African American women for years with the knowledge its talc products contained asbestos. And here in New York, Governor Kathy Hochul extended the state's overdue budget by one week to April 10th as negotiations with lawmakers continue. In recent weeks, housing activists have ramped up calls to include a provision for good cause evictions in New York state's budget, which would protect tenants from massive rent hikes and being kicked out of their homes. Activists staged protests at the state capitol last week, leading to dozens of arrests. National data show evictions increased by more than 50 percent last year. Meanwhile, climate activists say Governor Hochul is trying to gut New York's law aimed at reducing fossil fuel emissions by including a proposal in the budget that allows for more emissions disguised as a cost-saving measure for customers. The move downplays the effects of methane emissions by viewing its damage over a longer period of time. The Lever is reporting Hochul received donations of nearly half a million dollars in the last election cycle from CEOs of energy companies that would benefit from the change, including Hess Corporation and United Metro Energy. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, Juan, in a moment, we're going to go back to you in Chicago to talk about this historic mayoral victory for Brandon Johnson. But first, we're going to be here in New York with this latest news. Donald Trump has been formally charged with 34 felonies in an indictment unsealed Tuesday. After surrendering to authorities at a New York courthouse, Trump was placed under arrest and fingerprinted. He then appeared in a courtroom where he pled not guilty to all 34 counts of falsifying business business records in connection with hush money payments he paid out during the 2016 presidential campaign. Trump is the first U.S. president ever to be charged with a crime, also the first U.S. president to be impeached twice. This all comes as Trump is running for president again while he's facing several other major criminal investigations. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg spoke to the news at a news conference after the hearing and outlined the charges against Trump. Earlier this afternoon, Donald Trump was arraigned on a New York Supreme Court indictment, returned by a Manhattan grand jury, 
on 34 felony counts of falsifying business records in the first degree. Under New York State law, it is a felony to falsify business records with intent to defraud and an intent to conceal another crime. That is exactly what this case is about. 34 false statements made to cover up other crimes. These are felony crimes in New York State, no matter who you are. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. Donald Trump flew back to Florida after his arraignment and gave a speech at night in Mar-a-Lago, where he repeatedly attacked the judge in the case, the judge's wife and the judge's daughter, as well as D.A. Alvin Bragg and his wife and other prosecutors investigating him. And I never thought anything like this could happen in America. Never thought it could happen. The only crime that I have committed is to fearlessly defend our nation from those who seek to destroy it. To talk more about the charges against Donald Trump, we're joined by Bobby Sternheim. She is a criminal defense lawyer who's tried several high-profile cases. She was the lead defense attorney for Ghislaine Maxwell. We're also joined by Ralph Nader, and we're going to talk to him in a moment. But, Bobby Sternheim, if you can talk about this unsealed indictment, 34 felonies against an ex-president. This is historic. Talk about how significant you think these charges are. Well, I think the charges in and of themselves are significant. And what makes it especially interesting is that each of the 34 counts is grounded in a piece of evidence, whether an invoice or a check or an entry in a ledger. So none of these charges stand alone, requiring just the testimony of a witness. The documents, the ledgers, the checks— speak for themselves, and they can't be cross-examined. And, and what about this—what uh, about the issue of uh, these—what uh, were essentially considered uh, misdemeanors uh, being possibly raised to felonies, and, uh, and the, the debate over whether uh, the, uh, conviction can be gotten on some of these counts? Well, certainly it doesn't seem like a slam dunk because it involves a legal theory that will have to be developed at a trial. Although the indictment itself is pretty silent on the underlying facts, other than the documentary evidence, the statement of facts that accompanied it really speak loudly, and they enhance the indictment almost turning it into a speaking indictment. The linkage of the checks, the invoices, the ledger, all show that something was done. And what stands behind all of this is Donald Trump's efforts with other individuals to help him succeed in the presidential election. And what's interesting about it it shows behavior that occurred during his candidacy and behavior that occurred after he was sworn in and became president. So it almost is a prequel for things that will come in other jurisdictions. But yes, it may seem unique to some, but these kinds of crimes 
are prosecuted every day, and it is not an uncommon indictment as one might see in federal court. Now, the judge also warned Trump that if he acts out or disrupts proceedings, the court will proceed without him. Uh, this is a uh, common, especially at, the, at, at an arraignment situation, is it? Well, it is not uncommon for a judge to tell an individual that the proceedings will go on even if you don't show up for your trial. And those are warnings that are often given. It is not typically given in a business fraud case. And what even layered this admonition, which are called Parker warnings, was the fact that the judge even indicated that if the defendant, in this case Donald Trump, were to act out or be disruptive in court, he could be removed and the proceedings would go on without his presence. So that was somewhat unusual, but it does dovetail with the other issues that were raised during the arraignment, which have to do with remarks that Donald Trump has made and continues to make even after the a, uh, the arraignment on his indictment. And Bobby Sternheim, um, following up on that point, uh, you have a speech last night at Mar-a-Lago. Um, the judge warned him about inciting violence. He attacked the judge. He attacked the judge's wife, the judge's daughter, uh, the DA, the DA's wife. Already on the um, Manhattan DA's website, they have taken off the identification of all the people that work there because of the death threats against the Manhattan DA. What about the significance of this? Well, what is very significant, looking at it in a frame of a typical defendant who would be before the court where a court would decide whether bail should be granted, two of the major factors that a court would consider would be whether an individual will flee the jurisdiction and be present in court, and the second is whether the individual would be a danger to the community. In this case, the statements that Donald Trump made before he entered the courtroom and made right after he exited the courtroom and re returned to Florida certainly show an indication of a danger to the community, a danger to the lives of certain individuals, and an overall disrespect for the court. Now, the court could have been more bold in an admonition to Donald Trump, but it somewhat soft-pedaled it. But now the ammunition has been launched by Donald Trump for the prosecutors to ask the court to put into place maybe not a gag order, but certainly rules and regulations that would be deemed in violation of court order if Donald Trump continues to lash out to individuals personally and cause any form of civil unrest. Bobby Stern, I want to thank you for being with us. Criminal defense lawyers tried several high-profile federal cases, former president of the New York Women's Bar Association.
This is Democracy Now!, as we cover this historic arraignment of former President Donald Trump. We look at what he has not been charged with. Well, at least yet. We're joined on the phone by Ralph Nader, longtime consumer advocate, corporate critic, former presidential candidate many times. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Ralph. Um, your response to what took place yesterday, it was historic, first ever ex or sitting president charged, criminally charged. He's charged with 34 felonies. Um, and he also has been impeached twice. But talk about what he did get charged with and what he didn't. Well, it was historic in the sense it was massively overdue. Uh, let's start with Donald Trump's notorious statement in 2019, which lays the basis for his lawlessness day after day as president. He said, quote, with Article 2, I can do whatever I want as president, end quote. Really? But he went on to prove it before 2019, when he made the statement, and after. And so the broader frame of reference here is that he turned the White House into a, a daily crime scene. John Bolton, who was his special assistant, in his memoir said, obstruction of justice in the White House was a way of life. That's a serious crime. In the Mueller report, they outlined 10 major obstruction of justice against law enforcement uh, in a, a very uh, brute, uh, crude manner. Uh, there was, wasn't any subtlety about it. But he, what uh, Trump has done openly, brazenly, uh, there's nothing furtive like Nixon uh, about Trump, is that in the White House, he set a historic record for defying over 150 congressional subpoenas. That's criminal contempt. He got away with it. He shoveled around billions of dollars from one program to another, uh, most notoriously from uh, military housing projects uh, to extend the wall on the Mexican border. Uh, that is a, a violation of a criminal law called the Anti-Deficiency Act. He got away with it. He used the White House as a political re-election base, had events there openly, right on the White House lawn, and forced the Treasury Department to put his name on millions of checks going out during the pandemic to millions of Americans. That is a crime. It violates the criminal prohibition in the Hatch Act from using the power of the federal government against your electoral opponents. He got away with it. Uh, it's important to say also that all presidents violate laws. He's just taking it to a new and diverse height. But he's doing it so brazenly that if he gets away with it, he will continue to contribute to the institutionalization of lawlessness by presidents of the United States. Let's face it, uh, both Bush, Obama, and Trump have violated all kinds of laws in extending the empire. Uh, Obama, for example, uh, <clears throat> decreed uh, informally that he could uh, pick out anybody in the world and as prosecutor, judge, jury, executioner, and, and in secret, uh, wiped that person out, and, and he did it. Of course, Bush was the big war criminal with Cheney invading uh, Iraq. But then Obama 
took out the regime in Libya without a congressional debate, without a congressional authorization, appropriation of funds, or declaration of war. And that's, to this day, producing chaos and violence, goaded by Secretary of State Clinton, who pushed Obama to do this, and he later admitted it was the biggest mistake of his administration. So we have all kinds of other tax violations, obstruction of voting, campaign finance violations, never mind his uh, assault and battery of women, which he seemed to be proud of. So this uh, event yesterday uh, represents the first turnaround. Why did the Democrats wait so long? They had 12 impeachable offenses in 2019. We got them in the congressional record, December 19th. Congressman John Larson put them in. Uh, Nancy Pelosi just went with the Ukraine matter. Not exactly uh, a kitchen table issue affecting millions of Americans. They had much better issues. So you had one party letting the other party get away with it, in part because the Democrats also uh, violated laws at the presidential level. So I think the American people have got to see this as a opportunity, a gateway uh, to reverse uh, the process where presidents are above the law. They have been above the law. People around the world have suffered and, and died because uh, th- these presidents have been uh, above the law. So we have uh, to Ralph, broaden it out, because the, the, what the GOP is going to try to do is focus on yesterday and Alvin Grant Bragg's prosecution, when the criminal uh, Ralph, lawlessness Ralph, of, uh, of Ralph, Trump I, I wanted to ask you about uh, Trump's. Uh, Ralph, I wanted to ask you about Trump's attacks on the IRS, uh, and uh, especially since probably his most consistent historical. Uh, violations have been in evading his own uh, the taxes, his personal taxes, and those of his of his companies. Could you talk about that? Well, yes. Uh, David K. Johnson's written about this. He was on your program yesterday. Uh, he's been under regular audit year after year by the IRS. There never seems to be any resolution. It turned out that the IRS was so strapped in its budget, it just had one auditor on this massive uh, commercial uh, sprawling empire of uh, of Trump, uh, using every possible tax evasion, tax avoidance system imaginable. So he really has gotten away with that. But worse, apropos your question, is he worked with the Republicans year after year and starving the IRS budget so that it couldn't have the skilled auditors to go after the tax evasion of the super rich and the multinational corporations. In fact, one study out of Berkeley pointed out that over 20% of the top super rich Americans in in the United States were evading billions and billions of dollars of taxes. And the IRS was handcuffed. And to this day, the IRS is under pressure by the Republicans uh, going after their budget. Fortunately, they don't control the Senate, so they can't get it through. But clearly, the, the, the Trump and the Republican Party were actively and purposely engaged in aiding and abetting uh, tax evasion by the super rich and corporations, all kinds of money that could have gone to good works in our country. 
Um, and we only have a minute to go, Ralph. Um, but if you can talk about how Congress, how the president um, can hold not only President Trump accountable, but other Republicans. And as you say, this is often bipartisan, Democrats as well, on the critical issues that you care about. And this whole issue that isn't being talked about as much, especially as Republicans try to frame what's happening here in New York as um, uh, uh, as the D.A. saying he won't go after misdemeanor crimes as not going after serious crime, but instead using this political target of Trump— in other words, but instead going after corporate crime. If you can talk about how novel this is for people to see issues of corporate crime front and center. Well, I wish they would use the phrase corporate crime more instead of the antiquated white-collar crime. We're in the corporate crime wave in this country. All you got to do is read the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, listen to Democracy Now!, uh, and the amount of enforcement budget is minuscule. It's like having 20 police in Manhattan during the crime wave. And uh, so you're right to point out Congress is the focal point here, whether we like it or not. It is the most accessible branch of government. There are 535 men and women. People know their names back home, and they've got to get mobilized because what Congress can do is redress the imbalance of power, reign in empire, reign in the military budget, redirect public budgets to public necessities in this country, and above all, initiate its criminal contempt power. This idea that congressional subpoenas of the White House can be defied with impunity because it takes too long for Congress to work through the federal courts up to the Supreme Court is a false idea because the Congress has a generic criminal contempt power. They can arrest. They could have arrested Trump when he defied the January 6th subpoena. They could have detained them. That actually occurred in the 1930s. But a lot of members of Congress don't even know that they have the criminal contempt power and do not have to go to four years of judicial uh, appeals, etc. So Congress is the hope for the American people. It's the hope to redress this. It's the hope to reorder our priorities. It's the hope to really make sure that nobody is above the law at high political and corporate crime uh, levels. The corporation uh, CEOs are clearly, in many ways, completely above the law. Look at the Boeing uh, criminality. There's been no action against Mullenberg and uh, and the other uh, CEO, the present CEO now of Boeing. They got away with it. And, and, and people all over the country know that the big boys get away with it. There's a double standard of justice. So people out there, get on top of your senators and representatives. Show, that, show them you've got a pulse. You know their numbers. You know their emails. You know how to reach them. Without you, Congress can't act. Without Congress, we don't have a republic. We have an emerging fascist, fascist uh, movement in this country, and Trump proved it by his words yesterday at Mar-a-Lago. 
Ralph Nader, I want to thank you for being with us. Longtime consumer advocate, corporate critic, former presidential candidate. He's the founder of the Capitol Hill Citizen, which is coming out in a few weeks, a newspaper, and also the grand uncle of Samia Stumo, who lost her life uh, in the Boeing crash in Ethiopia. Coming up, we look at major progressive victories from Chicago to Wisconsin. Stay with us. When I wake up in the morning, love. The sunlight hurts my eyes And something without warning love Bears heavy on my mind Then I look at you And the world's all right with me Just one look at you And I know it's gonna be Lovely Day by Bill Withers. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. While Donald Trump's arraignment and arrest dominated headlines Tuesday, two significant elections took place in Chicago and Wisconsin. <clears throat> we'll look at both, beginning in Wisconsin, where Judge Janet Protasiewicz has won a special election over Dan Kelly for a seat on the state Supreme Court giving progressives control of the court for the first time in 15 years. With her election, the court's now expected to restore abortion rights in Wisconsin. Janet Protsiewicz spoke to supporters Tuesday night. Today's results mean two very important and special things. Yes! First, it means that Wisconsin voters have made their voices heard. Yes! yes. They've chosen to reject partisan extremism in this state. And second, it means our democracy will always prevail. Too many have tried to overturn the will of the people. Today's results show that Wisconsinites believe in democracy and the democratic process. Joining us from Wisconsin right now, from Madison, John Nichols, the nation's national affairs correspondent. His new piece is headlined, Wisconsin Chooses a Progressive Justice in the Most Important Election of 2023. I assume you're up very late writing this, John. Judge Janet Protasiewicz. We have to keep on practicing that. It is not an easy name to say, but it's one that could determine how the 2024 national elections turn out. Explain the significance of this race. It's hard to overestimate the significance of the race, Amy, and thanks for having me on. Uh, look, the Wisconsin Supreme Court was really the bulwark of uh, conservative political and legislative action in the state 
uh, for more than a decade, going back to the days of Scott Walker. It was the Wisconsin Supreme Court that uh, put a stamp of approval on Walker's assaults on labor unions, on Walker's assaults on voting rights, and a host of other issues, and including on that list the gerrymandering of Wisconsin's legislative and congressional district maps. So right there, having a new liberal majority on the court opens up the possibility that the maps for legislative districts and congressional districts will be redrawn. That redraw, if it comes quickly enough, uh, could open up as many as two congressional seats for competitive elections that are not now possible. That, in turn, means that Democrats could pick up two House seats in Wisconsin. If you think about how narrowly the U.S. House of Representatives is currently divided, that's a very significant development right there. But the other thing that's very significant as regards to the 2024 election is that the Wisconsin Supreme Court, to a greater extent than almost any court in the country, has entertained many of the Republican efforts to assault voting rights, suppress votes, alter ways in which elections are managed and handled. This court came within a vote of uh, really opening the door for many of Trump's challenges to the 2020 election results. And the conservative candidate in this race, Dan Kelly, was a lawyer for the Republican Party who actually engaged in and was part of those discussions about developing a slate of fake electors, which would have sought to overturn the election. If he had won a place on this court, In 2024, if Donald Trump was the presidential candidate of the Republican Party, if he was challenging results, he would have had a court in Wisconsin that was particularly sympathetic to him. Now he has a court, as Janet Protosiewicz said, uh, that is determined uh, to uphold the rule of law and to defend democracy. So that in itself, not just for Wisconsin, but for the whole country, is a huge shift. And John, could you talk about how this victory became possible, given the fact that judicial elections are normally not uh, high profile events that most voters pay attention to? Yes, that is a a very good question, Juan. Look, uh, in Wisconsin, judicial elections have become high profile events in recent years, Uh, going back to 2018, uh, when Judge Rebecca Justice, Rebecca Dallet, won a critical race for the Supreme Court. Uh, And in 2020, when Justice Jill Karofsky defeated Dan Kelly, the conservative running this year, in a Supreme Court race. And so these races have become more and more significant in Wisconsin. This one, because it was uh, a balance-tipping race, became a big deal. People recognized that a seat became open. That's when a former justice or current justice decided not to run for re-election. That was a conservative justice. This open seat it became clear it was going to determine whether this was going to be a conservative court or a liberal court going forward, not just for the next few years, but potentially into the 2030s, because these are 10-year terms on the court. So a lot of progressives in Wisconsin began to focus very, very closely on this race. They made a big deal about it. They talked about it early. They organized a great deal. You saw labor groups, civil rights groups, uh, community groups, all sorts of folks you know, who really got engaged with this, not this year, but they started last year. And the fact of the matter was the race did become nationalized. You saw huge amounts of conservative money coming in from billionaire donors. Uh, and at the end of the day, it was it looks like there's going to be about 45 to 50 million dollars spent on this race, the most expensive Supreme Court race in the history of the United States. So all of that made it incredibly high profile. 
to the point where um, you saw kind of breakthroughs in turnout, much higher turnout in in a lot of the state than in previous yeah. races by far. And John, and we have. We have another two cities to go to in today's uh, show because so much is happening from Chicago to Nashville. Nashville is about guns. Um, abortion, I think, is uh, one of the key issues in this race. The abortion law in effect now, the abortion ban, was passed in 1849, an abortion ban in Wisconsin. Would you say this is a bellwether overturning, I mean, putting in a progressive majority on what this could mean for the country? Absolutely, on the issue of reproductive rights. And Janet Prosewitz, as a candidate, said from the start that she would speak about her values. And one of her values was that that she believed that the right to choose was settled law and that women have a right to make choices as regards their own bodies. She was very blunt about that. Her opponent, Dan Kelly, was backed by militant anti-abortion groups. And so it was an incredibly clear choice. And in a battleground state, one of the most contested states in the country, you now have a potential that a liberal Supreme Court may overturn that 1849 law, a law passed just one year after Wisconsin became a state. If it does, this could be one of the real breakthroughs as regards the debate over reproductive rights, but also for this understanding that this issue of a woman's right to choose is an incredibly potent political issue. There is simply no question that it resonated in the race in Wisconsin, and it was one of the factors that drew a tremendous number of young voters, especially students on campuses, to the polls. And they played a, a very critical role in this contest, both in the primary and the general election. Well, we want to thank you, John, for being with us. John Nichols, Nation's national affairs correspondent, speaking to us from Madison, Wisconsin. We'll link to your piece, Wisconsin Chooses a Progressive Justice in the Most Important Election um, of uh, the Year. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. As we to go from Wisconsin to Chicago, another closely watched race, Brandon Johnson was elected mayor of Chicago in a major victory for progressives. Johnson, a black teacher's union organizer, defeated conservative Democrat Paul Vallis, a champion of charter schools who ran on a law and order platform. Johnson won even though Vallis had outspent him two to one. Brandon Johnson spoke last night to supporters. So Chicago, I'll say it this day. Today, we take big steps towards figuring it out here. So I believe since we are taking steps to figure it out here, let's take this bold progressive movement around these United States of America. So, Juan, that's Brandon Johnson. You're in Chicago. Talk about the significance of this victory. Yes, Amy. Uh, all the polls have been predicting a dead heat. It was a close race, the narrowest margin since Harold Washington won election uh, as Chicago mayor back in 1983. But Brandon Johnson did succeed in uh, building a uh, rebuilding a progressive uh, coalition uh, to uh, be able to capture the um, uh, the mayoralty. He won in impressive uh, uh, majorities in various groups uh, across the city. Uh, the uh, In the African-American community, he did far better than the polls were showing. So basically, the undecided African-American voters broke in the last week almost completely for him. Uh, he did win a majority of the Latino wards uh, of the city. 
Uh, and uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, Paul Vallis did do very well in some other uh, Latino wards in this city in, in the areas of uh, Humboldt Park, West Town, Logan Square, Avondale, the historically Puerto Rican neighborhoods of the north side of Chicago. Uh, Brandon Johnson racked up in the in the almost 70 percent uh, uh, of the vote. Uh, but in some of the more middle class uh, Latino neighborhoods of the southwest Chicago, uh, actually, Paul Vallis uh, had the majority of the vote. So uh, Branton Johnson did win a significant majority among the Latino community, which, of course, has been the fastest growing. And uh, and uh, but Vallis uh, did have significant support, obviously, in the white community and in some sections of the of the Latino community as well. Uh, now comes the difficult part of governance, uh, because Brandon Johnson is going to be facing a police uh, department, police officers who see him as as their worst nightmare. He's going to be facing a business community uh, that is uh, definitely worried about uh, uh, some of his uh, pronounced policy positions. And of course, the the billionaires who continue to fund the charter school movement are going to be find uh, also going to find a, a, a difficult situation with the new mayor. So we're going to be a key aspect of this, of course, was the the uh, the power and the mobilization and the money of major labor unions like the service uh, uh, service uh, SEIU, uh, the Service Employees International Union, the, the teachers union, especially the Chicago Teachers Union. Those were the main bulwarks of the, the ground or organization uh, that Brandon Johnson was able to put together, as well as the financing uh, that he was able to raise. Well, of course, we'll continue to follow what happens in Chicago with you right there in the middle of everything, Juan. Um, next up, we're going to go to Tennessee, where Republicans are trying to expel three Democratic lawmakers for supporting student-led gun control protests at the state capitol after last week's school shooting in Nashville. We'll speak with one of the legislators they're trying to expel. Stay with us. Somebody to Love by the Blues Brothers. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Students across the United States today are joining a nationwide school walkout to demand lawmakers take action on gun control. Just over a week after a mass shooting at a Nashville elementary school killed six people, including three nine-year-olds, gun violence remains the leading cause of death in young people in the United States.
States. The tragic attack prompted multiple student-led mass protests that filled the plaza outside Tennessee's state capitol building, as well as the halls inside the capitol. Among those who joined them were three Democratic state lawmakers. Now, Tennessee House Republicans are taking steps to expel the three. For more, we're joined in Nashville by one of the targets um, of the Republicans. Democratic Tennessee State Representative Justin Jones faces an expulsion vote Thursday, along with Representatives Gloria Johnson and Justin Pearson. They've already been stripped from committee assignments and their member IDs have been shut off. And we're joined by Esri Tyler, a national organizer for March for Our Lives and a student now at Vanderbilt University. She was 13 years old when she organized her first walkout after the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Esri, talk about the—I mean, there is not that much attention on what's going on in Nashville right now after this mass shooting killed six— but over a thousand people protested at the state capitol on one day alone. Uh, talk about what you're demanding. Absolutely. We're demanding that lawmakers hear that we can't be ignored anymore. This issue has been, as you said, it's the leading cause of death for young people across the nation. But Tennessee is uniquely impacted by this. We have some of the loosest gun control laws in the entire nation and some of the highest death rates of gun violence. And it means that it's an issue that impacts us every day. And the Covenant School shooting is a tragic reminder that this is something that impacts our young people every single day. So thousands of students turned out on Monday and in a coalition of teachers, students, elected officials from the level of school board levels all the way to state representatives showed out with us. And it shows that we are not alone in wanting this change, and we are demanding this change. And the expulsion is just an attempt to silence our voices. And what's been the responses of teachers and other school officials to the walkouts? Teachers and other school officials have been completely supportive. In fact, we actually had a Metro Nashville Public Schools board member join us and speak at the rally with us. They are here with us. Teachers are equally fed up. And the reason that we had these walkouts is because our schools aren't a safe place for our students, and we need to acknowledge that. Ezra, you said you're protesting also the attempted expulsions tomorrow, which brings us to our next guest, to Representative Justin Jones. Can you please explain how this is possible? You were elected by the people. You're one of the youngest representatives in the Tennessee state legislature. And now the Republicans are attempting not only to strip you of your committee assignments, which you already have been stripped of, but to throw you out. Why? What took place on the state legislature floor? Yes. Well, thank you, Amy. Um, I think it's, it is so morally insane that a week after a mass shooting traumatized our community, instead of passing laws to take these weapons of war off our streets, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle are passing a resolution and pushing a resolution to expel us for being voices of opposition. This is authoritarianism. This is an assault on our democracy. It's an attempt to silence the voices of thousands who gathered, students, mothers, grandparents, teachers, people who are demanding action to stop um, our children being massacred in schools. It's a, it, this is a preventable issue, and our colleagues 
like they're trying to bury us because they want to shift attention from the children we had to bury, the nine-year-olds in our community that is still grieving. And so what, what happened is that our colleagues, um, we, we stood with these students, we stood with the young people, we stood with those gathered in the state house because that is our job as lawmakers is to make sure that the voices of the people are heard. And the speaker cut off our microphones. He wouldn't let us talk about the issue of gun violence on the House floor. And so we stood up in the well um, and, 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 and chanted with the people in the galleries and, and, and let them know that um, we need action, that until we take action, there will be no peace in our community. That we, that, that Nashville, this is not the first mass shooting in Nashville. There's one of my constituents um, with the Waffle House shooting was impacted by the Waffle House mass shooting. And unless we take action, this will not be the last mass shooting in Nashville. This is a crisis that we need to address. And so we're facing a crisis of mass shootings. And now we're facing a crisis of our democracy where colleagues on the other side of the aisle are openly um, welcoming and signaling a, a system that is that's nothing less than fascism to oust three democratically elected lawmakers in the silence over 200,000 voters in our state is it, it should it is a danger to democracy all across this nation. And Representative Jones, they they actually shut off the, uh, the uh, I, your ID card access, removed you uh, from being able to access the, the parking lots of the legislature and also uh, removed you from committees. Was this done by a vote or was this done just by fiat by the leadership? It was done by the Speaker Cameron Sexton, who is acting like an autocrat. I mean, what we saw was no due process. He kicked, we got a notification to kick us off committee to, to, to limit our access in the building. But what, but what we want to say is that it's not about us. It's about that what they're doing is they're limiting the movement. They're limiting what we represent. And, and they're li- what we're seeing is opposition voices being kicked out of the legislature by a supermajority Republican body that is drunk with power and that is si- trying to silence any voice of dissent in our state. Our state constitution, Article 2, Section 27, says that lawmakers have a right to dissent from and protest against legislation that is injurious to the people. This proliferation of guns, of weapons of war on our streets is injurious to the people. We had no other choice but to do our job and to speak and dissent and protest against this immoral um, obedience and, 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 and worship of guns in our state. And, it, and, and, we, and we will continue to do that, whether we are expelled or not. We will continue to stand with the people um, and, because that's, that's, what our, that's, what, that's what we should do. Representative Jones, um, I want to play a clip of you last month. Uh, this is on the legislature floor after the passing of House Bill 30, which seeks to expand banning drag shows in public spaces. I just want to point our attention to some hypocrisy that's happening in this building right now. So we just voted to not have any type of regulation or, or any type of safety precautions around the Second Amendment, but now we have a, a bill to regulate drag shows. Drag shows are not a threat to our community. Mass shootings are. So I, just, I hope that we pay attention to the, the, the ridiculousness, the circus that is this body, where we're now passing a bill to create a regulatory board of drag shows, but... The sponsor of the previous bill said that we should not regulate the Second Amendment. But when it comes to the First Amendment, members of this body have every intention and every comfort with with disrespecting, undermining, and regulating First Amendment's free expression clause. I just think it's, it's absurd that we are so threatened by drag shows, but we don't take seriously the real threats to our community. And I just ask my colleagues here again to, to look in the mirror. What is going on in this body? This is, this is absurd. And I hope that my, this, the sponsor of this bill will reconsider this attack on the LGBTQ com- community. Banning drag shows, but not guns. Um, Representative Jones, you also had an interaction with one of your Republican colleagues where he attacked you on the floor, grabbed your phone and slammed it on the ground. Yeah, on on Thursday, um, excuse me, on Monday, when 
they first introduced these, this resolution to expel, they cleared the gallery. I know Esri was up there with students. The media was kicked out of the gallery. And so I was trying to record what was going on. They sent troopers to descend on the gallery and to remove people from their house. And as I was recording, Representative Justin Lafferty um, pushed me and grabbed my phone. Um, and so he acted in a way that was disorderly and in a way that was instigating violence. But we don't see any motion to expel him. But they're expelling us because we stood with the people. They're expelling us because we called um, attention to their, to their proliferation of guns and weapons of war on our streets. They're expelling us because they don't want to talk about the issue. And they think that by getting rid of us that the issue will go away. But we know that it will not, that the people will continue to show up and hold them accountable and say that we must protect our kids and not protect guns, that, that our communities are more important than, than money from the NRA. And that's what we're saying. Uh, I'd like to bring Esri uh, Tyler back to the conversation. This, uh, the, there's a national school walkout uh, today or Wednesday as students continue to demand that lawmakers enact stricter gun control laws. Is it your sense that given the inability of, uh, of grown adults and politicians to be able to do something about gun violence, that it will necessitate a continued uh, disruptions of the public school system by high school students walking out to force change in our government policies? High school students have been walking out for years now to demand change in this issue. I started in this movement five years ago when we began with the tragic Parkland shooting at 13 years old, where I felt like it was my responsibility to walk out of my middle school. Mm -hmm. And we have continued to be showing out and continued to show up. Um, And the nationwide walkouts are in support of the Nashville walkouts that we saw on Monday, which were a huge show that all of these coalitions are in unity on this. But the biggest thing with these nationwide walkouts is that they're drawing attention to the fact that there is not only inaction, but there is flagrant disgrace and disregard for students and the continued organizing. And that is why we are also needing to expand and discuss the fact that gun violence is an inherently intersectional issue. And by censoring our representatives and the representation of those who are protesting with us, it is even more disrespectful to the youth vote. Youth voters are consistently turning out in record numbers, and we are who are deciding the policies. We saw even in these last midterms, the youth is what decided what was who was elected and what is coming next. And so to these lawmakers who think that they can continue to ignore us and who can continue to ignore us on the nationwide scale, they're going to feel the price. Because if they continue to try to not pay attention to young people, they are going to be voted out. Uh, Esri Tyler, you're at Vanderbilt. Uh, Justin Jones, you were at Vanderbilt. Um, uh, Justin uh, Jones, uh, what is your recourse to stop this from happening? The response of your constituents who voted you in, and also you uh, and your colleague are the youngest black representatives uh, in the Tennessee State House. Is that right? Yeah. You're also joined by a white female representative who they're trying to throw out? Yeah, that's correct. So myself and Representative Pearson are the youngest black representatives in the state. Um, and Representative Gloria Johnson is one of only two Democratic women. And so we see that this, this, this body of predominantly white men are trying to silence the voices of, of our districts and our voters, which is over 200,000 people. And, in, and by doing so, they, they, they are insulting and attacking and assaulting our democracy. We're calling for a ban on assault weapons. They're assaulting our democracy. And that is shameful, and we need action, um, because if this, is, if this goes forward in Tennessee, this will happen all across the nation in states like Tennessee that are controlled by these extremists. And so this is going to set a very dangerous precedent for democracy in our, st- in, in, our, in our country. And we hope that the people of the nation will continue to keep an eye on Tennessee and stand with these young people who are simply saying that they want to live, that they want to be able to go to school without it feeling like a war zone, um, and that they want to be, feel safe 
And so my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, they can expel us, but, but we know that what they're doing is unconstitutional. We're going to challenge it in court. We're going to challenge it in the streets. And what they're doing is just, is put, is just amplifying the movement that is calling attention to the crisis of these, of these mass shootings and the inaction of lawmakers who are beholden to the NRA, who are beholden to the Tennessee Firearms Association, and who are ignoring the will of the people. That's not democracy. That's authoritarianism. But we will not be intimidated. Well, we want to thank you both for being with us. Justin Jones, one of three Democratic Tennessee state representatives who face an expulsion vote on Thursday, author of The People's Plaza, 62 Days of Nonviolent Resistance, which has a foreword by Bishop William Barber, and Esri Tyler, national organizer for March for Our Lives and a student at Vanderbilt University. Again, the Tennessee governor, Bill Lee, uh, signed uh, yet another deregulation of guns in Tennessee in a Beretta gun factory. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Our website is democracynow.org. Thanks so much for joining us.